And people thought we couldn't get more washed, but uh, no, we're just going to keep getting more washed from here. We'll, the oh, the yeah. horrible condition I'm in right now is the best condition I'll be in from now until the end of my life. Yeah. yeah. And um, let me see, in about a, a month, I will officially be closer to 60 than to 50 even. Oh, dear. Oh, my dear. God. <laughs> yep. You may as well Hello. just uh, climb into a grave at this point, Kieran. Yeah. I'm already plotting the, the music for my funeral. Oh yeah, what's on what's on the playlist? Well, you'll have to come to my funeral and find out. <laughs> All right, uh, if I outlive you, I assure you, I will be at your funeral, but only because I want to hear what the music is. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Someone will be delivering a eulogy, and I'll be like, "Pipe down! I'm trying to hear the next track." <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Interim Champion Boxing Podcast with Raskin and Mulvaney, along with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And on this episode, we welcome our most special of guests, you, the listeners. That's right, we are opening up the ICBP mailbag at the end of the show. Um, we'll also talk about fights coming together for David Benavides and the artist formerly known as Tank Davis. We'll do some previewing of Anthony Joshua versus Francis Ngannou two weeks out. Eric will test me with another round of the fight game, and we'll offer our analysis of the win on Saturday night for Edgar Belanga. But before we get into our first segment, a quick word about the ICBP going forward. Uh, a huge thank you to all of our subscribers, paid or not. We appreciate your support. The percentage of our subscribers who have elected to go the paid route far exceeds what we were told to expect by other media folks on Substack. Uh, and it is deeply flattering anytime we get a notification of new paid subscribers. And we think it's important to be upfront about what you're going to be paying for in March. As we are both now busier writing for Pro Box slash Boxing Scene, and as we are getting toward crunch time on discussions of transitioning the pod to a new home, and as I'm about to start a new day job and Kieran has a book to write, we have to reduce the output a bit in March. Uh, there will still be new pods in March, but at least two or three, we figure. They won't necessarily be weekly. They may be a little shorter. Um, we'll still have From the Vault episodes just for the paid subscribers all month, including probably the last two HBO oral history pods. So you're still getting plenty for your $9.95, but we wanted to be upfront. If anyone chooses not to renew at the end of the current payment cycle, we totally understand. Uh, we hope that you will renew, but just wanted you to be able to make a fully informed decision knowing what our planned podcasting schedule for the month looks like. Uh, Kieran, anything to add? Yeah, you know what's funny? I've been a freelancer for most of my adult life. And like pretty much any freelancer, I spent the majority of that time stressing about where the next gig is coming from or how I'm going to pay for something to eat. And now suddenly I find myself in a place where I actually have too much work and some of it has to get trimmed back. Mm. And it, there's never been that beautiful sweet spot in the middle. Uh, and so as a result, it's triage time for me. It's triage time for you. And naturally, we need to prioritize a, what's going to earn us money, and B, what we're contracted to actually do. Right. But um, yeah, look, don't worry, people. This does not mean that we're done with podcasting about boxing, um, or even that we're on the way out. Doesn't mean we're not either. It's right. just that there's a lot of uncertainty yeah. uh, right now uh, with boxing, with media. Yeah, as Eric mentioned, pro box and boxing scene are giving us some guaranteed income for some guaranteed work, and maybe all that will change too. 
But as Eric said, in the meantime, we love your money. We welcome your money. <laughs> but please don't feel obligated to keep sending us money until we know what's up. There you go. All right. Well, for now, uh, we do have a full Sunday podcast episode for you. And we start with the action from Orlando, Florida, Saturday night, where in the main event of a DAZN broadcast, Edgar Berlanga scored his first knockout in over three years, ending a five-fight decision streak and improving his record to 21-0 by pretty much dominating limited but brave Patrick McCrory and ending things with a tremendous right hand in the sixth round. Uh, Kieran, you covered the fight for boxing scene and took the opportunity to compare Berlanga's work to, quote, an orca smacking around a baby seal. With or without further aquatic comparisons, tell me what you thought of Berlanga's performance. Um, And the conversation immediately turned to his entrance in the Canelo sweepstakes. So do you think he deserves that shot in May off this knockout win? And and what are the chances he actually gets that shot? Look, McCrory was handpicked to give Berlanga a shot at getting a knockout. Um, And it was pretty clear relatively early on that he was most likely going to get it. He wasn't overwhelmingly impressive, Berlanga. It took until the third round before he really threw anything of consequence. And even then, his most meaningful blow was a deliberate elbow in a clinch. Uh, There just wasn't a great deal to really write home about. Look, once he got going, he did the job. He started landing hooks and right hands and McCrory made it easier for him by constantly dipping to his left into the path of Berlanga's power punches. He didn't do a terrific job, Berlanga, of setting up his offense, but he also didn't need to. He 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 chugged after him. He landed right hands one at a time. And once he had him nicely softened up, that's when he opened up and, and finished him off. He did what he needed to do. He beat the guy in front of him. He knocked him out. He sent the fans home happy. And important part of the mission, he got people mentioning his name in the context of Canelo. That said, he showed nothing to me to suggest he would have even the slightest chance against Canelo, uh, nor has he ever really. Um, What's kind of funny is that two weeks ago, you and I mentioned him as a possibility with a snort. Who else is Canelo going to fight? Edgar Belanga? Ha ha ha. (laughs) Uh, And now here we are. Um, I'm having a hard time reading the Canelo tea leaves at the moment. Part of me definitely feels that Saturday night was set up for this very eventuality the whole time. And we discussed this as a possibility. Is the reason Canelo's waiting to make an announcement is because he's hoping that Edgar Belanga looks really good on Saturday night? I kind of wonder if it has been. The only thing that gives me pause is that Eddie Hearn, of all people who is ready to, to leap on the train to hyperbole. Um, he was the one pumping the brakes a little bit. Oh, maybe Edgar needs one fight more, right. et cetera, et cetera, which you wouldn't normally expect him to say if he felt confident that an offer for Canelo was, was coming around the corner. Um, but equally he did all but invite that call to come. Look, I still think the most likely opponent for Canelo is Jamal Charlo, whatever we all feel about that as his best. But I'm at the stage where I would be less surprised if it were Edgar Belanga than if it were David Benavides, unfortunately. And uh, really, I think it's got to be at this stage, and we'll talk some more about about Canelo and Benavides later in the podcast, but it feels like it's Charlo or Belanga or Jaime Munguia for me right now. Yeah, and when you mentioned those three particular names... I guess the way I look at it is I'm going to have a pretty hard time getting on board for Canelo Berlanga when Canelo Munguia is sitting right there. Not that Canelo Munguia is a dream fight for me. Uh, You know, it's not a must-see fight or it's not a fight where it's tough to pick a winner. None of that. 
I would way, way, way prefer that Canelo fight David Benavidez or Terrence Crawford. Um, and either one of those would make his May fight a truly huge event. But if he's going in the direction of a medium-sized May event, Munguia is more deserving, more battle-tested, has built up a bigger name. It just doesn't make any sense to me to pick Berlanga unless Munguia is totally pricing himself out and Berlanga has much lower purse demands and, and it becomes a pure business decision. But I, I see Canelo Berlanga as just a total mismatch based on the skill gap and one knockout to end a five fight streak without a knockout does not prove that your punching power is quote unquote back and you're a realistic threat to take Canelo out. Yeah. I, I really dislike that Berlanga has apparently become an option unless Canelo is repeating the old Floyd Mayweather shell game where float an opponent that nobody wants to see you face like Floyd did with Devin Alexander once. And he even did it with Kareem Mayfield one time. And then when you face someone kind of meh, like Robert Guerrero, the fans are like, okay, not bad. Could have been worse. Maybe, maybe that's the goal here, that Canelo says he's talking to Berlanga's people, and then he signs to fight Munguia. And we all say, yes, Canelo Munguia, I'll take it. Um, Berlanga, you know, he, he looked fine against McCrory. Um, the final punch was a beauty, but I just... I you, you got to look at the quality of opposition as basically, as you said, he did what he was supposed to do in this fight. Doesn't prove he's actually better than he looked against Steve Rolls or Marcelo Caceres. I just hope people will keep this in perspective, but um, I credit, I guess, to the people behind Berlanga for putting it out there that a knockout of McCrory means he's ready for anyone. Um, good, good marketing on their part. Um, I just have one other quick note on Berlanga. He's kind of a dirty fighter. Um, he threw a very intentional elbow to the jaw in the third round. Um, yeah. We got a mailbag submission that came in too late to include um, from Michael Parada, who wrote, Berlanga clearly tried to bite Romer Angulo. Why is he still mm -hmm. fighting? I personally think he should not be allowed to box again. Is that too harsh? Uh, I do think it's too harsh. Plenty of other fighters have bitten opponents and, uh, and been given another chance. But there's a trend here of Berlanga mm -hmm. not coloring inside the lines. Um, Look, I, I enjoyed his KO one streak as much as anyone. That was really fun. But um, this is a very, very flawed fighter here. Yeah. Uh, all right. Earlier in the day on Saturday, much earlier, in fact, uh, with ESPN Plus coverage beginning at 4 a.m. Eastern time, uh, Tokyo hosted a trio of alphabet title fights in the lowerweight divisions, swept by the Japanese fighters over their visiting opponents. In the main event, Takuma Inoue, brother of Noya, retained his bantamweight belt by knocking out Juran Ankahas in the ninth round with a body shot. Not a result I saw coming, I must say. Um, for a different bantamweight belt, Junto Nakatani, best known for his vicious KO of Andrew Maloney last year, dropped Alexandro Santiago twice in the sixth round to force a stoppage. And at junior band, Kosei Tanaka continued his climb up the scales, having won titles at 105, 108, and 112, and has now added a fourth division by winning a unanimous decision of a tough Christian Bakasregua. Uh, Eric, the scheduling of this card was right in your wheelhouse. This is prime <laughs> Raskin time, that mm -hmm. 4 a.m. onward window. So you were up early watching. Who or what stood out to you? I didn't really mean to be up early watching live necessarily, but uh, wouldn't you know, my head popped off the pillow at 4.15. So I headed downstairs and turned on the fights and I did watch live. Solid show. Nothing anyone needs to go out of their way to watch if they missed it, but some fine performances, brutal body shot to end the Inoue-Ankahas fight. I mean, 
sometimes the body shot lands and the fighter goes down and he can't quite beat the 10 count. But, you know, another few seconds after that, he's okay. Not this time with Ancajas. He was on his knees for a couple of minutes trying to shake it off and take a breath. He was in some real pain from that liver shot. And it was it was a weird one. It was an across-the-body right hand to the liver. Uh, really did some damage. In a way, look, he's not the special talent that his brother is, but he's solid. He can fight. This was certainly his best win. Ancajas had lost two of his previous three fights, but they were by decision. In a way, became the first to stop him. So impressive result there. Uh, Nakatani also tremendous win over Santiago. We watched Santiago beat Nonito Donaire last July on the Crawford Spence card. And uh, we wondered maybe that fight said as much about Santiago taking a step forward as it did about Donaire slipping. I guess not. Uh, I guess Nonito is really pretty much done. Uh, Santiago, he's a serviceable fighter, but Nakatani had it pretty much all his way. And uh, there's talk of Nakatani versus Takuma Inoue being likely at some point soon. I think I favor Nakatani if that happens, but what a tremendous event that would be in Japan. As for the Tanaka-Bakasegwa fight, not bad. Competitive in spots until Tanaka took over in the second half. And he's had an unusual career. He won a title in his fifth pro fight in 2015 when he was only 19 years old. And by 2018, he had won titles at 105, 108, and 112. Then he moved up in 2020 and suffered his only career loss in a title challenge against Kazuto Ioka. And so... He had a four-year gap without a title, mostly fighting 10-rounders, and now he gets another shot and claims a vacant belt in 2024. Very interesting trajectory, although nowhere close to a Hall of Fame resume yet, if you ask me, uh, as Adrian Broner has also proven. Winning belts in four divisions says more (laughs) these days about the devaluation of belts than it does about the accomplishment of racking up all those titles. But anyway, solid card from Tokyo. I'd give, uh, in a way, the mini award for best KO and Nakatani the mini award for best overall performance. Uh, Let's move along to the outside the ring news. And we have as our main event a pair of significant fights that popped up suddenly and both seem close to being signed. David Benavidez, having apparently given up on getting the call to face Canelo Alvarez in May, is on track to move up one weight division to light heavyweight and face Alexander Gvozdik in June in a bout that would headline a PBC on Amazon Prime pay-per-view. And also in the works to headline a PBC on Prime pay-per-view is Abdul Wahid, formerly Javante Tank Davis, defending his lightweight belt against Frank Martin. For simplicity's sake, I will not refer to this fight as Wahid Martin or Davis Martin, but rather as Tank versus Frank. Uh, That's reportedly on track for either late spring or early summer. Kieran, what's your reaction to these likely pairings? Do you believe Samson Lukowitz's claim that Canelo was offered $55 million to face Benavidez and passed? And anything else on your mind here? I read an embarrassingly bad column on Boxing Scene recently that tried to claim that Canelo doesn't owe us anything. And if we don't get a Benavidez fight, so be it. Guy was obviously trolling for a reaction, but... Um... <laughs> or, or very high on drugs. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Or possibly just seeing the world with just greater clarity than the rest of us but <laughs> probably not um but no but seriously look um like just about anybody not named eddie Renoso or canelo alvarez i would much rather that canelo took on you know that benavidez would get an opportunity against canelo and that is the fight to be made but um no Reynoso is adamant that they haven't received an, an offer from matchroom pbc top rank or golden boy which might be semantics right because from that quote that i saw of his he was quite explicit none of the major pro- promoters matchroom pbc top rank or golden boy have made us any kind of offer didn't say he hadn't gotten an offer from samson lukowitz um right. 
I know Samson a little. I think he's a pretty stand-up guy. So I don't think he's just making this up out of whole cloth. Uh, I, I don't think anyone is exactly lying, but maybe there's some economy with the truth going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of that aside, I like Benavides against Wojtek. Uh I like Benavides going to 175, notwithstanding the fact that it means him moving away from Canelo. Because I also think that if he beats Wojtek, and I think I'd favor him to do that, mm-hmm. I reckon the people better be a fighter, a winner, would probably fight him. Uh, I, I I could see that happening, and I and I would really like to see that. Um, I like Tank Frank as well. Uh, I'm not sure that Frank Martin is ready, but maybe he would never be quite ready for Tank, and maybe you just have to take your opportunities. Um, you know, we want to see... I don't think that Frank Martin is necessarily the opponent that most people want to see Tank against. They want to see him against Shakur, maybe Lomachenko, maybe even William Cepeda. But, you know, not to denigrate Frank Martin, who's a, who's a very, very good young talent. But if Tank does get past him, I would hope that we would. it wouldn't be his only fight of the year, Tank. Right. Um, I would hope that we would see another big performance against a big outing against a Shakur-type fighter later in the year uh, i think has how we're going to feel about this matchup this is going to be one where we're really going to want to see what the pay-per-view undercard is like assuming this this whole fight goes ahead as to how we feel about the pay-per-view as a whole uh, and the other thing that's on my mind is a general point that you and i come back to a lot this is a lot of pay-per-views potentially yeah. back to back to back and not just with pbc boxing fans are being asked to dip into their pockets a lot um DAZN promised to get rid of pay-per-views and immediately threw out the pay scale so much they've had no option but to switch to them. Top rank and ESPN continue to have pay-per-views. And right now, PBC is only pay-per-views. We do need to start seeing some meaningful cards that don't cost 40 or 50 or 60 bucks. Times are not easy, and we sure are asking a lot of money from boxing fans right now. Yeah, took the words right out of my mouth on that one. It's uh, it's really adding up. Um, but you know these these potential fights on their own, um, you know, sort of taking the pay per view cost out of the equation and just looking at them as fights. I like Tank versus Frank. No caveats really there. Just a good mm-hmm. solid fight. And I guess it helps justify Martin not fighting Shakur Stevenson last year because he will have held out for what I would consider a slightly bigger fight. And he can claim this is the reason he didn't fight Shakur because he knew this was in the offing. That may not be true, but I'm just saying he can make that claim now if he chooses to, but very good fight. And perhaps we'll get some uh, coach Calvin versus Derek James fireworks at the pre-fight activities with that one. Um, Benavides Kvalchik is a little bit more of a mixed feelings thing for me. Um, I'll let you know whether I approve of it when it's over, you know, uh, it could, it could be a good fight. <laughs> It could be a scary beating for Gvozdik that makes us mm, say he should have mm, stayed retired. Mm. I'm not sure yet which uh, to expect. But from Benavidez's perspective, seems as good a fight as any for him while he waits for Canelo to maybe fight him in September, maybe hopefully cross our fingers. Um, yeah, if, if he wants a fight against a name opponent that isn't as dangerous as David Morrell, then this makes sense. Um, all right, not a lot on our news undercard, uh, just three quick items. Um, we recently discussed Devin Haney against Ryan Garcia coming together for April 20th, but the location is a minor curveball as it's headed to Barclays Center in Brooklyn rather than Las Vegas, as originally reported or assumed. Or is it? Um, because Garcia and promoter Oscar De La Hoya are destined always to be at odds. <laughs> uh, Garcia tweeted on Friday that, quote, 
this is an MGM Vegas fight doing everything we can to bring this to Vegas and giving this fight what it deserves. Uh, Gilberto Zerdo Ramirez is set to transfer a cruiserweight belt. He'll face undefeated Arson Gulamirian on the zone from Inglewood, California, IA. The date is Saturday, March 30th, the date on which I become closer to 60 than 50, incidentally. Mm. So make a note on your calendars, everybody. Um, and that will put also that fight up against that first Amazon Prime pay-per-view that we've talked about before. Uh, and lastly, uh, Manny Pacquiao was hoping to box in the Olympics this summer, apparently. But there is an age limit in place for Olympic boxes. They cannot be over 40. And the IOC has determined that it will not alter the limit for the 45-year-old Pacquiao. Uh, Eric, anything to say about any of these items? Yeah, the, the Ryan Garcia twist that, that they make the big announcement that it's in Brooklyn. They release a poster that says Barclays Center. I'm sure there were negotiations <laughs> between people in suits with lots of money and all yeah. sorts of terms agreed to. And then after that sewn up, he's out here tweeting that the fight belongs in Vegas. and He's doing everything he can to bring it there. I don't know. Can, can he just try for like 30 seconds to make it seem <laughs> like he and his promoter have each other's phone numbers and have some form of communication yeah. with each other. It is both hilarious and very sad at the same time. Um, I will say, you know, these are fighters with West coast fan bases. Vegas does make some sense, but you know, Oscar, when he was fighting, he made it a point in his prime of occasionally headlining at the garden or in Atlantic mm -hmm. city, spreading it around. There are a lot of fight fans in and around New York city and Brooklyn. I would imagine this fight can sell out there and, then feel like something different than just another Vegas yeah. casino fight. Look at Tank. Um, he proved his selling power in D.C., Atlanta, San Antonio, L.A. I think it was good for him to not only fight in one region. I say Barclays Center is perfect for this fight. Uh, but either way, the time to insist it belongs in a particular location is before a venue is announced, not after. Um, <laughs> I have much less to say about Zerto versus Guilamirian. Looks like a solid fight on paper, though I, I need to study some Gulamirian video, and I haven't really done that yet. Um, and Pacquiao, you know, the IOC gets a lot of things wrong. Uh, boxing in the Olympics has not been well handled in a very long time, but they've made the clearly correct call here, not just because they have a rule in place and have decided to stick to that rule, but because 45-year-old super-duper star athletes are not what the spirit of the Olympics is all about. <laughs> and... If Pacquiao were boxing in the Olympics, yes, it would bring a lot more attention to the sport during the Paris Games, but it would also deflect attention away from all the other boxers. There yeah. would be this like circus surrounding Manny, and that would cloud whatever any other boxers are doing. Th this was the right call. Boxing is a younger man's game. Olympic boxing is specifically supposed to be a launching pad for younger fighters. I am relieved that the IOC did not screw this one up. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Time now for the fight game. And um, before this week's news items developed, I was honestly thinking, you know, I don't think I've given Kieran a Manny Pacquiao fight for the fight game yet. Maybe I'll do that. But then Manny factored into the news, and I don't want to make it easy on you with a fighter who's already front of mind. So that's your clue zero. This is not a Manny Pacquiao fight. Uh, you, you know that much going into it. Are you ready for your first real clue? It's Pacquiao Marquez 3. <laughs> I'm sorry you've used up all your guesses I'll just tell you the ah. answer <laughs> Alright, first real clue Okay We've never done a no contest before In the fight game But that streak ends now This fight is in the books as a no contest Though initially It was deemed a KO2 
Actually, Team Decayo 2. Wonders why it was no contestified. Is it by the no time we by the time we get all the way through five clues, if we get that far, I will have told you why it was no contest. No contestified. Okay. Yes. All right. Um, I feel like this is something that I should be able to guess in one, but I'm not guessing it in one. It it would be tough to get in one. Not impossible. Oh, it would. Oh, okay. It it, right. it would be. You know, if you had gotten it in one. That you know, I would not have been completely blown away, shocked, but I was not expecting you to get it in one. So don't feel bad. Okay. Yet. Okay. Uh, clue two will give you a pretty good sense of the time frame. You know, you know how I love to tell you uh, other fights on the card. Here's uh, here are some of the other <laughs> fighters on this card: Zab Judah, an undefeated title holder, successfully defending his belt; David Izon, Luisito wow. Espinosa, and Layla Ali in her eighth pro fight. Wow. So you should have a pretty decent guess as to roughly what year this took place. So that's a pretty good likelihood that I was watching this. If not actually there, then on TV. Mm -hmm. So it's very early in this. So we're talking like 2001, two-ish, I'm guessing. 2000 even, maybe. Uh, I will say, I will help you out a little by saying that uh, among those three years that you just named, one of them is the year this fight took place. You are, you, you, I won't tell you exactly which year, but you, uh, you have targeted the right time frame. The Tyson fight? Maybe. I think King was, prom was King promote, promoting all of those guys at that time? Was he still promoting Tyson? Is it a King fight? You're trying to get me to answer your little sub questions here. I am not. I am. I am staying mum while you work your way through this. Although I guess I'm not saying staying mum if I'm telling you that I'm staying mum. <laughs> it's very meta. Are you staying mum if you're if you're saying I'm staying mum? Um. Uh, I want to. No, nothing's quite coming to mind at the moment. Let's go to clues. I don't even want to take a guess. Okay. All no, right. let's go to clue. Okay. Clue three. The temporary winner of this fight, before it was changed to a no contest, was coming off a very quick KO in his previous bout. The temporary loser was coming in off a 10 round decision win over Orlin Norris. So, it's either a cruiserweight or heavyweight, because Orlin Norris bounced between the two, right? That is Cruiser true. and heavy, as far as I recall. Yep. I don't have a strong recollection of any Orlin Norris fights. I'm not embarrassed to say. Yeah, that's that's like the least revealing part of the clue. That was just meant to make sure that you... I'll, I'll just spell out. That was meant to make sure that you realized this was a heavyweight fight we were talking about. So it is Tyson, then, I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Is it Galata? You've got it, Kieran. It is Mike Tyson, Andrew Galata, which was ah, a KO2 no until it wasn't. Because of pot. Is yes. That right? Yes, that is correct. That's right. Yep. Um, so I'll go ahead and read clues four and five, uh, and uh, and then we can discuss some more. Uh, clue four: 
The result of this fight at the palace at Auburn Hills in Detroit was changed due to a positive marijuana test. The fight itself is best remembered for the temporary loser taking a beating and wanting out and his trainer, Al Cerdo, trying to force his mouthpiece back in (laughs) to no avail. Actually, it's maybe even better remembered for angry fans pelting him with beverages after he left the ring. Uh, That's a substantial clue. I would have gotten. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I figured I figured there's no way we're actually getting to clue five here. But uh, clue five would have been. The marijuana angle makes all sorts of sense, given that the Hall of Fame fighter in question would go on to host a podcast called Hotboxing. <laughs> and whether it's a KO2 or a no contest to, the important thing is that he got the fight over with before his opponent could go low to his balls with punches. Woof. <laughs> Woof indeed. <laughs> uh, so yes, October 20th, 2000, Mike Tyson, no contest to Andrew Galata. Wow, almost a quarter century ago. I mean, 23 and a bit years. Good Lord. Yeah, crazy. But yeah, see what I mean about like not impossible to guess it in one, but I don't think you're likely to think of that fight just from knowing it was a KO2 that turned into a no contest. And I'll be honest, I had forgotten that it was changed to a no contest. For Like I needed this to remind me that I had forgotten about that subsequent element um for a little bit until you kind of jogged my memory there so um yes uh but you were you were right there on clue two on clue two you were naming tyson you just couldn't quite figure out what what fight was a ko2 yeah i think because i forgot because i had forgotten initially that it was a no contest and then it was only when sticking with it and i'm like oh that was the only one that i could think of and and then i think i think part of my reptilian memory kicked in or something so (laughs) there you go ah thank god for reptilian memory Ah, yes. And there's also nothing like the fight game post-game. I would have got it in three <laughs> if I thought of this. Right. But you did get it in three. Right. And right. you should feel good about that. Three is always okay. a solid score. Okay. All right. Um, time now to preview some upcoming fights. Uh, and since we don't know yet whether we'll be recording a podcast next week, um, we'll cover not just next weekend's fights, but also the major card coming up in two weeks, just in case. Uh, but let's start with this weekend. Nothing major. Uh, a pair of televised shows on Saturday, March 2nd. Good Lord already. Um, from <laughs> Verona, New York on ESPN+. Plus. Noted top-ranked prospect Raymond Ford takes on Odebeck Kolmatov for a vacant featherweight strap. While in the co-feature, another featherweight belt is on the line as Luis Alberto Lopez defends against Rhea Abe. Uh, and from San Juan, Puerto Rico on the zone, staying in the featherweight division but switching from men to women, it is Amanda Serrano versus Nina Mainke. And in the co-feature, an eight-round cruiserweight bout, Jake Paul faces another professional boxer, Ryan Borland. Uh, Eric, do any of these sites interest you? Do you want to place any bets? And since we fulfilled our February money punch obligations that we may not have a pod next week, let's say that any bets placed today count toward the March requirements. So th- there is one fight among these that I am very much looking forward to. It's not Jake Paul's fight, uh, although I probably will watch that. He has my attention in general, sadly, and uh, and at least it's not on pay-per-view. It's not Amanda Serrano's fight. Uh, that looks like an absolute mismatch, although I, I plan to watch that as well because I enjoy watching Serrano and I'm excited to see the Puerto Rican crowd respond to her. She hasn't fought there in three years. It's not the Luis Alberto Lopez fight. Uh, I don't see that one being too terribly competitive. Abe is not really a championship level guy. So process of elimination. The fight I like is Ford versus Kolmatov. Uh, now, Ford, uh, as the American, the English speaker, he's the one who's been making the rounds, appearing on podcasts, kind of getting treated like the A-side. And he is a good prospect, no doubt. But Kolmatov, the little I've seen of him, 
this guy might just be the next scary former Soviet Union destroyer. Uh, he's from Uzbekistan. He's a southpaw. He's tall for the weight and can box, but he can also punch. I watched his destruction last year of Thomas Patrick Ward, uh, a slick UK boxer who I was fairly high on. And Kolmatov just wiped him out, knocked him down three times, stopped him in five. Ford is talented, but I think he may be in a little too tough here. Um, it's an excellent fight on paper. 12-0 versus 14-0-1. Easily the most competitive fight of the weekend. I like it. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm going to make it that much more interesting for myself by placing a little bet on it. Still looking for my first win in this damn thing. Uh, Kolmatov is the slight favorite. The best price on him is minus 148 at FanDuel. Rounding things to whole dollars. I'll bet $15 to win 10. And... I'm tempted to bet on Serrano to stop Menke at plus 125, but I don't know. I guess it's pretty close to a toss-up between KO and decision, so I will resist the urge, which definitely means that Serrano is going to win by KO because I wanted to bet it but didn't, which means you probably should, Kieran. Go ahead and bet that since I didn't. <laughs> I'll, I'll pass. I have a bet. I have a bet, Okay, I'll pass so far. Oh, okay. So I, you have a bet yes, coming we, up, but not on this I have coming, a bet coming weekend. Up. Yes. Okay. Right. Gotcha. Yes, yes, All right. Yes, then yes, let's yes. get to the big one, uh, a fight we would have scoffed at completely a few months ago, but uh, now we have to take it somewhat seriously. On Friday, March 8th on DAZN pay-per-view, Anthony Joshua takes on Francis Ngannou in a 10-round heavyweight bout, while the co-feature pairs Gilles Zhang and Joseph Parker in a scheduled 12-rounder. I'm pleased to report that for DAZN subscribers, the pay-per-view appears to cost just $39, a reasonable price, I'd say. Also worth noting, Engano has announced that win or lose, his next fight will be an MMA fight. Uh, Kieran, we've had several weeks now to absorb the news of AJ versus Engano. To what extent are you on upset alert here? To what extent do you find yourself caring about this card? Sounds like you do want to place a bet, so let me know about that and any other thoughts you have at this time. There's always an upset potential in heavyweight fights. I mean, especially the, given that Ngannou's demonstrated already that he can punch. Um, but I think it's also worth revisiting and recalling that fight with Fury. Yes, it was far closer than it should have been. Fury definitely is at risk of damaging his legacy as a consequence. But as you and I discussed on our podcast, the frothing and outrage about the result was way off base. Fury won that fight. Yeah. It wasn't pretty, but he did. Uh, and by the end, Ngano was sucking wind. Um, and you, and that was against a Fury who did not appear to have trained at all or taken this at all seriously. So I'm not on high set alert. Ngano's biggest weapon is his ramrod jab, but Joshua's is better. Joshua's is quicker too. And, and in fact, AJ's not always the faster man in there, but I think he will be here. He'll have the better jab. He'll have the better footwork. He'll probably have better conditioning. I think the Anthony Joshua who destroyed Otto Valin is an AJ who looks more focused, um, once more confident, um, once more comfortable with his natural controlled aggression. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't knock Ngannou out. Ngannou looks pretty durable, but mm. I do fully expect him to win at least eight rounds of the 10, leaving Ngannou as the best 0-2 boxer going. All that said, I'm going to throw a fake $10 on Joshua winning by stoppage in rounds 9 to 10 at plus 2,700. I'm surprised to see the odds on Joshua scoring a KO widen as the rounds progress. Um, when I suspect this is more likely to be a break him down KO if it mm. is to be a KO 
rather than a blast him out of their KO. I, I don't see it being that kind of a fight, but you can get better odds on AJ stopping him late. I, If all things were equal, uh, my prediction is probably going to be Joshua by very wide points. I don't think a late stoppage is by any means impossible. Interesting bet. Yeah, if, if that happens to hit, I'm I'm never catching you. <laughs> You're just like <laughs> going to be way too far ahead of me. But uh, yeah, it's a, that's a good fun long shot bet. Um, I do think AJ has a better style to handle Nganu than Fury does. And I realize I'm kind of saying that in retrospect about Fury, but AJ is more naturally heavy handed. He should be able to really keep Nganu on the end of that long, powerful jab. He is also more fragile than Fury. So, you know, <laughs> if Nganu lands the right shot, he could absolutely go. Um, so betting wise, I'm actually going to stay away from this one. Um, <laughs> I just I think AJ wins, but I don't want to rely on him not to freeze up or gas out or have something weird happen. But he should prevail and look good doing so. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. It's it's either a good night for boxing if Joshua puts the MMA guy in his place or it's a wild scene if AJ gets knocked out. So I, I'm, I'm interested either way. Um you know, it'd be nice if I didn't have to pay a penny on top of the $250 a year or whatever it is that I'm already <laughs> yeah, right. paying for DAZN, who we're supposed to be ending the pay-per-view era. But at 39 bucks, I can live with it. Um, I'm actually going to make one bet elsewhere on the undercard. Not not the Zhang Parker fight that, uh, that I mentioned in the setup, but uh, Ray Vargas is plus 135 at DraftKings against Nick Ball. Um, I'm nothing if not dubious of undefeated British fighters until they really prove something to me. And I don't think Vargas losing to a Shockey Foster proves that he's washed or anything. It feels like a toss-up fight to me, and we're getting slight plus money on Vargas. So um, the rounding of the dollars is a bit weird. If I bet 10, I would win $13.50, which I guess rounds up to 14, but that feels like a little bit of a cheat. So I'll, I'll go $11 to win $14.85, which more reasonably rounds up to $15 and God help any listener at home who cares not just about the fake dollars in our bankrolls, <laughs> but about the rounding of fake cents in our bankrolls. <laughs> um, and speaking of our listeners, we'll conclude the show with the listener mailbag. Uh, thanks to everyone who wrote in. we got some excellent comments and questions. Please don't be offended if yours didn't make it in as we're, we're only going with four this time because we are busy people living busy, high powered lives. Um, also, a couple of good ones came in a little too late. Uh, we already had our outline for the pod done and we are far too inflexible to change anything once that's happened. Uh, let's start with a question from our friend David Cushion, who uh, I just met up with IRL on Saturday for brunch. I've already talked to him more than enough this weekend, so I'll let you answer this one, Kieran. <laughs> David writes, hi, guys, in your time covering boxing, who has surprised you the most in terms of the career they've had relative to their talent? This could work either way. A fighter who you thought had great potential, but didn't have the successful career you expected, or a fighter who you didn't think had great talent, but went on to have a very successful career. Thanks, guys. I feel like we did a top five list on the Showtime part about boxers who had much more successful careers than we anticipated. Um, but of course, I've forgotten them all. Uh, <laughs> right. But I do know one of them was Tyson Fury. Uh -huh. Um I had zero expectations when he faced Vladimir Klitschko. I just, in my head, pictured the guy who punched himself in the face and got dropped by Steve Cunningham. And maybe that's on me for not digging enough into his skills, but I certainly didn't expect him to become the dominant heavyweight on the planet, uh, even if his career will go through something of a re-evaluation if he loses to Usyk after being pushed by Ngannou. Uh, I have a slightly easier time thinking of 
fighters for whom, whom I'd expected more than they delivered. I was extremely high, extremely early on Adrian Bronner, and we all know how that turned out. Um, right. I had high hopes for Jeff Lacey, who seemed to be on course to meet those expectations until he got slapped around by Joe Calzaghe, who, now that I think about it, was another one who I, I probably underestimated. Uh, and I was very high on Victor Ortiz. I covered him mm. from quite early in his career, and we actually became buddies. But yeah, when it came down to it, uh, Victor was really a surfer dude who happened to be decent at boxing <laughs> rather than a true natural prize fighter. Yeah, those are good ones. Um, I get, you know what? Now I'm realizing we also did very early on. We may have been one of the first top fives you assigned me was uh, top five busts, uh, Mm. guys that we had high hopes for. So I can't remember if any of those ones you just named made that list or not. But you know, I I think that I think that I put that list together, and I think I had David Price pretty high on it. David Price, yes, that's a (laughs) good one. Yes. All right. This next one was sent via email by Muthena Al-Salani. Muthena writes, this question is a little more serious and controversial, but I think you guys are thoughtful enough to address it. Uh, I recall you guys analyzing the Monzone series during the pandemic. I can't help but think that Monzone, in all likelihood, suffered from CTE. CTE is known to alter impulses of athletes and make them more violent, aggressive, temperamental, etc. Obviously, I'm not trying to excuse his heinous crime. But say hypothetically, Monzone's body was exhumed and we learned that he did suffer from CTE. How would that impact your view of him and his legacy? In my opinion, there's a fine line between excusing his behavior and acknowledging that head trauma could be a significant contributing factor. I don't think it's entirely fair to judge him as an ordinary man, given the physiological trauma, assuming CTE was present. I feel like we may be seeing more and more of these types of cases moving forward with boxers NFL players, etc. Eric, how do you respond to this very serious topic raised by Muthina? Monzone is an interesting example because absolutely he, he could have had CTE, but he was a temperamental troublemaking sort long before he got into the whole murdering women thing. So I'm a little hesitant to chalk it up to CTE with him, even if it turned out to be proven he did have CTE. But as a general rule, Yes, a, a person who has CTE and commits crimes, I view it a little like pleading insanity. Um, they, they shouldn't be forgiven and, and left out in the world to be a danger to others, certainly. But maybe a mental institution instead of a mm. prison cell makes sense. Um, and I'll tell you who I think about this a lot with is Arturo Gatti. Um, mm. I did not know him after his career. I have no personal observations to go on. But given the career he had and the punishment he took, would you be yeah. at all surprised to learn he had CTE? And look, now he's someone who was always wild, even in his 20s, partied hard, got into trouble, etc. So like what I said about Monzone, maybe CTE is a non-factor. But um, the night Gaddy died, he allegedly got into a loud public argument with his wife, lost his temper. Now, I'm of the belief, based on what I know, that Gaddy was murdered. Um, the physical unlikelihood of him hanging himself by a purse strap, the way they said, it, it seems close to impossible, but I'm not prepared to say 100% that I know Gaddy didn't kill himself the way that people close to him say, oh, Arturo would never do that. You know, maybe he did have CTE and he wasn't that same guy anymore who never would have done that. So I don't know. I think it's much more likely that he was murdered than not, but I just, I do find myself wondering if he had CTE and that played some role in all of it. 
I think it's fair to ask similar questions about Edwin Valero, who mm. had brain scan issues due to a motorcycle accident. Um, it's an interesting topic and an important one that Mathene raises. And I would absolutely say that if you commit a violent crime and it's proven you have CTE, it should be treated as a, a form of insanity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's really valid. Uh, my mind when I saw this question went back to a piece I'd written that I'd forgotten about. Um, I was freelancing for Discovery Channel News, and I don't know if you remember this. There was a NFL player, I think with the Chiefs, a guy called Jovan Belcher, hmm. who shot and killed his girlfriend, and then he shot himself in the parking lot of the stadium, I think, or of the training ground or or, mm. or something like that. Uh, I think there were like chiefs personnel like pleading with him. And Discovery asked me to write a piece about whether he might be suffering from CTE. And it was a difficult piece to write for exactly the reasons that, that you talked about and that Mathena wrote about in the question, which is that I did not want to appear to be excusing a heinous crime. Right. We had no evidence at the time one way or the other, but also noting that it was not by any means improbable and my understanding is his brain was later examined and he did have signs of cte Mm. um and it is a really important question and i think that we could all all of us as society be doing a better job of look our brain is responsible literally for everything for our behavior our personality our moods all our actions if we damage that brain then we're not as in, depending on what parts of the brain we damage, of course, right. we're not necessarily in control of those actions and behaviors and moods and so on. And so, yes, to what extent are we then culpable? And so I think the analogy with insanity then is, is, is that you made, I think, is an interesting one. And and like you said, that the thing with Monzoni C appears to have been kind of a shit always. Right. Um, he's just like that kind of a person Valero was that a little bit too although he did definitely seem to get worse Mm. um at one point but because you were naturally a horrid person doesn't actually mean that if you have CTE that isn't itself responsible for your action subsequently it can like if you're already at five on the awful human scale um and say CTE adds five to your awful human scale suddenly you're at 10 and that makes you really bad whereas if you start at zero maybe it elevates you to five it just means you're kind of obnoxious and nobody likes you anymore but but when you're at 10 maybe you're killing people so I think I think it's a very interesting topic and I think it's 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 something that perhaps we sort of just right off a little bit in in boxing oh yeah well he's gone crazy you know did you see that that fighter and so and so he's just he's just gone off the rails oh well and we just kind of abandoned them a little bit i I don't know that that was the case with monzon uh it it doesn't appear to me to be the case because it appears to have been i don't want to say rational behavior but consistent behavior rather than constant like this sudden eruptions of rage right um which you would think would be more to do with, with with cte but um but yeah, I think it's I think it's an important consideration for us to always keep in mind, not just with NFL players or boxers or whatever, but but other people going forward. That yeah, physical brain damage is um, yeah is a a significant thing to to consider in these kind of situations. Yeah, I'm glad Mathena sent this email. It's a really interesting topic. Uh, Agreed. But, uh, but we do need to lighten the mood a little, I think now. So uh, let's do that with this mailbag submission from Gerald T, who writes. 
Hey guys, loving the podcast. Followed you here from Showtime. Keep up the great work. Now to my question. If they were to set up another Super 6 style tournament, is there a particular division you'd like to see involved? Parentheses, cough, 140 pounds, cough, and then a couple <laughs> of emojis. Uh, Kieran, what do you think? Is 140 your top choice, as Gerald suggests, between coughs, or is it a different division? And if it is 140, in the interest of not having your answer simply be, yes, Gerald, it's 140, and then we move <laughs> on. Uh, who are your six fighters at 140? I mean, there are a couple of other good candidate divisions. Super middleweight is strong, but that was the first Super 6, so right. we can't have that again. And anyway, even if it's not always the matchups we want, those guys are mostly facing each other anyway. Lightweight's good. Featherweight's really coming to life. Um, but yeah, I like 140 as a suggestion. I think it's a good selection. So who do we want? So we want the best, first of all. So Devin Haney's right. in. Okay. Um, we want the popular contender who'll bring in the fans and, you know, we just don't know how well they're going to do, has all the talent in the world. Um, so in comes Ryan Garcia. Um, Teofimo Lopez has to be in. Mm-hmm. He's the wild card. You, you, he's the guy who has the extreme skills. He could win it all. He could implode, right? We just don't know what the heck's going to happen with Teofimo Lopez. He has to be in it. Subriel Matias is a must. Yep. Um, because of his extraordinary power, which is a real leveler. So who are the last two? They like Josh Taylor's on the downslope a smidge, so he's going to miss out. Jack Catterall just isn't very exciting to watch. Mm-hmm. Jermaine Ortiz kind of blew his chance to be included with his performance against Lopez last time. So who's coming in? I think we want the young, exciting contender who could surprise everyone. So hello, our friend Gary Antoine Russell. Mm-hmm. That's number five. And number six, I was torn between the good, solid veteran who probably won't win and has actually lost to, to one of the guys already um, or a couple of the guys um, or the young, brash, unbeaten guy who you want to include just to see him get beat. In other words, for me, it's a choice between Regis Progre and Rolando Romero. And... It's got to be TV as well as a boxing tournament, right? Right. So I hate it. It's got to be Raleigh Romero. <laughs> it pisses yeah. me off to say it, but I think it's Raleigh Romero. Yeah. yeah, I think that makes sense from a marketing perspective. And uh, good for you for having the discipline to do 140 without uh, without saying, you know, Tank Davis is just a division away. He's moving up to 140 <laughs> right. for this because right. uh, that would make it even more star studded. But sticking with just 140, I think these are these are the right names. And uh yeah, I think I'd watch. I'd tune in for this. Hmm. Hmm. There you go. All right. Last one here from Randy Gelling. And this is very directly up your alley. Uh, Eric, hence my reading it and you're answering it. Uh, Randy asks, with the historical corruption of U.S. boxing from when the mob was involved during the first half of the 20th century. That's an interesting question. This, what do you think the impact of legal gambling may have on the sport long term? So I guess the implication here from Randy is he's asking, will legal sports betting lead to more corruption in boxing? Uh, And if that is what you're asking, Randy, to me, the answer is a strong no, just the opposite. Um, When sports betting is illegal, when it's taking place in the shadows, like with the mob running boxing or, or like the basketball ref Tim Donahue allegedly fixing games, that's when it's a much bigger danger to the integrity of the game as it gets legalized and especially as it takes place with online accounts where every bet is easy for anyone to track 
Uh, there are even companies that specialize in identifying suspicious betting that investigate this stuff. And, and you're seeing it in all the sports leagues, athletes getting suspended for getting caught betting on their sports. Yep. Does anyone think athletes placing bets wasn't happening before sports betting was legalized? It was happening, but it was happening with bookies and unregulated offshore books, and nobody knew when it was going on. The reality with boxing is that you know what boxers are being paid at a top level, it's hard for anyone to bet enough to be able to convince a boxer not to try his best. Um, maybe a judge or a ref. That's maybe a little more conceivable mm. just from a financial perspective. But top boxers have too much money at stake and mid-level or, or low-level boxers, you know, it would raise enormous alarm bells if someone tried to bet a million bucks on an eight-rounder featuring some journeyman. Mm. From where I sit, the impact that legal gambling may have on boxing long-term is that, like all sports, it could get more people watching the sport. Um, I can't tell you how many football games, basketball games, even golf tournaments I've watched part of because I put a few bucks on it. Um, mm. Like NFL ratings, they'd be huge no matter what, but they would not quite be what they are without sports betting and fantasy football. So maybe boxing ratings can benefit too. Uh, the downside is the first time you bet on a fight and you lose money because of a shitty decision, you may swear off the sport. So that, right. that's that's the downside. But legal betting is potentially very good for the sport, uh, good for viewership. I don't see anything to realistically fear in terms of the sport getting corrupted, or at least I should say getting any more corrupted than it already is. <laughs> right. I mean, you're working from the assumption that there is room for more corruption in boxing. <laughs> right. um, we, but yeah, it's like it's like often, you know, when there would be controversial decisions in a Las Vegas fight, people would scream and shout, and say, oh, this is because of Las Vegas, because of all the betting. Right. Actually, it's the reason that people were aware of the shitty decisions in Las Vegas was because all the big fights were in Las Vegas. And that's the, right. ones, the ones that most people paid attention to. And feel free to correct me, but my experience has been been that actually boxing in vegas was more regulated and people were more frightened of the wrong thing because there is this big federal oversight of of the gaming industry that you know and that's an one reason why the mob just doesn't have the influence in in las vegas that it used to is precisely because of the, the huge presence of the gaming industry that the mgm is the one that is the, the the entity that dominates las vegas and it really needs to keep its nose clean uh whatever else one might think so that was certainly always been my impression that and that was one of the reasons why nevada traditionally had a had a strong commission um that that actually in that sense the very existence of of the gaming industry there made it in a sense a, a safer place so to speak yeah i think that's absolutely correct and there are there have always been terrible decisions that seemed potentially corrupt in Las Vegas, yep. just as there have been terrible decisions that seem corrupt everywhere because boxing can't seem to get rid of terrible decisions. I really don't think that sports betting one way or the other is a, is a significant factor in that. No. All right. That will do it for this episode of the ICBP. As noted already, we may or may not have a new episode next week and maybe a quickie, maybe a full episode, maybe nothing until after Joshua and Ganu. But we do know for sure we will have a From the Vault episode in the middle of the week, one of our absolute favorite interviews from the HBO days. Perhaps someday we'll be elevated. But until then, we are merely the interim champion boxing podcast. <laughs>